are very happy to have among us our senior fellow Andres Martinez, who will be moderating tonight's conversation. Andres Martinez is a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion. He is the director of the Bernard Schwartz Fellows Program at the New America Foundation. He is the former editorial page editor of the Los Angeles Times, and he was formerly on the editorial board of the New York Times. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Andres Martinez. I read Colin's book and I really enjoyed the discussion of, uh, he's identified 11 nations uh, that make up our country. And so often, both at the Center of Social Cohesion and at New America in our political discourse, every day we always talk about, you know, why can't we get back to being one country again? And if, you know, whether you're on the right or on the left, you yearn to get back to some you know, original intent, whether it was the Founding Fathers, whether it was that moment of time where we all came together as one nation behind a particular American creed, whatever that is that, that speaks to you. Uh, but I think the value of uh, Colin's book is to say, wait a minute, we never really were one nation. Uh, we are an amalgamation of 11 nations that he's identified. It's, it's in our name, or the United States. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to first ask you, Colin, to sketch out a little bit uh, why you came to this project, um, what are you trying to contribute to our understanding of where we are in this political moment in terms of regionalism, and what is it that uh, has been missing from the discussion that led you to sit down with the map and come up with these 11 nations? Absolutely. And thank you all for coming. Can you all hear in the back all right with my, my projection? Excellent. Um, I came to this, um, you know, I have a background in history, so I've always been interested in the past and how the past informs the present, but also um, I was a foreign correspondent in Eastern Europe in the Balkans. Uh, I, was, I was there during the collapse and stayed on through the transition. And there's nowhere perhaps in the world where cultural fissures, which do not match uh, official boundaries on the map, have more impact in present events, uh, often tragic, than there. And that was... Uh, living amongst it, people for better or worse were well aware of where the fracture lines uh, lay and what their historical past was, and uh, that sometimes gave you far better insights into what happened and what was going to happen in that part of the world than the actual uh, lines on the map did. So I mean that, that only um, put propellant on my thinking about these sorts of things. Um, regionalism, we're all aware that it exists on our continent, um, but and so when I came back to North America, I was thinking about those things, but as I, for the first time, really moved around and lived in far-flung parts of the continent I hadn't before, I kept seeing those stark differences in, you know, essential values and ideas of what the American ideals were in people's conception, even of the, the past and what we were founded on, were different as you moved from region to region, and again, didn't correspond to state boundaries. Um, I think we all know this, there's been bits of scholarship and people have written about these things on the edges, but there hadn't really been an effort to really draw and synthesize the whole picture so that you would actually have a framework to look at history and the present um, and be able to hopefully uh, do better analysis and uh, further the questions and conversations we have in the country. So uh, that's kind of what led me to this. And um, can you just maybe... We, people can look at them, some people can look at the map over here. If you could just quickly maybe give an overview of what the 11 nations are. I, I should first of all say that um, you're sitting at the Arizona State University facility here in Washington, D.C. Um, their classrooms downstairs, offices upstairs. But the ASU folks refer to this uh, almost teasingly as their 
embassy in, in Washington. And it turns out that maybe that's not so inaccurate, uh, seeing how uh, it's a different nation. Uh, and I, I don't know if Phoenix is uh, in El Norte or the far west, uh, but maybe there's uh, far west, but really the embassy of two different nations. Uh, so as a native of El Norte myself, I grew up in northern Mexico, I really appreciated, uh, one of the things I really appreciated about your book was uh, injecting the reminder that uh, the first European settlers in the United States did not come from the East, they came from the South, and also the notion about New York, too. I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of the Dutch influence in, in North America as a, as a separate parent of this country, and your descript, description of New Netherland uh, was, I thought, especially riveting in this notion that the Dutch, in a particular period of time, were the incubators of the modern world. Um, but anyways, I don't want to steal your thunder. If you just quickly just walk us through the 11 nations. Do you want me to actually try to mention them in brief, their characteristics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. yeah. yeah. We were talking about whether we would do that. The, um, yes, absolutely. So the, um, the nations that we have date back to the early colonial period. And the oldest ones are all on the eastern and southern rims of our nation, including, of course, the Spanish-American borderlands being the first of the Euro-American nations. They date back that far, and they date back to the fact that the initial colonial clusters that were placed on the continent were placed there by people from very different parts of the British Isles, or of the Netherlands, or of France, or of Spain, who each came with distinct ethnographic and religious uh, and political goals in mind, with different ideals, indeed with different intents. They knew that at the time. They weren't all coming, of course, to found a unitary American state. They were coming to found specific individual societies. You see that reflected in some of our, our history textbooks, but somehow the fact that we came out of that is lost when people get rolled up into the revolutionary period. I mean, people now try to go back to that founding father's time when we have you know, crises of unity and we want to go back and found those founding principles that we all agreed on to overcome our divisions. The problem is the founding fathers in 1776 of 1789, that's the wrong generation. You're showing up at the intermission of the story of our country and trying to figure things out. The real founding fathers are those people's grandfathers or great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers, depending on where we're talking about, and they all came with different ideals and intents. And very briefly, in almost a comic book fashion, I will try to roll them out. They're, they're all going to read the book. So. You all read the book, and then all the nuances and like flavor and caveats will all become clear. This is a history that begins at the beginning and brings us to the present. So I really go through all the nuances and things that will jump into your head. But very briefly, Yankeedom, the greater New England uh, cultural sphere, founded by uh, a radical utopian religious experiment uh, by Calvinists. The key thing to know about that is from the beginning, the idea was that you could perfect earthly society and make it more godly. So from the beginning, it was a, a, a emphasis on social engineering as a project and the uh, ability for public institutions to somehow make the world better and that there should be individual self-denial for the community's good, which in many ways is a very un-American idea elsewhere, but for Yankees is uh, part and parcel. New Netherland, just a little further to the south, founded by the Dutch as a like the Amsterdam in the early 1600s, it was founded as a global trading society with an enormous influence on, uh, enormous emphasis on freedom of uh, inquiry and conscience. Uh, Midlands uh, comes out of uh, the Penn's uh, Quaker experiments uh, in Philadelphia, the, and the Quakers had an idea that uh, everybody had an inner light and that mankind was fundamentally good, and this led them, among other things, to open up their immigration policy to let anybody come in. So it essentially became, from the beginning, a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multicultural place, 
a mosaic where no one group was particularly in charge, that was the model. That idea that we're, um, we're pluralistic and that there's American identity is about the fact that we created a space where peoples would live next to each other. Again, that's one of the ideals you hear, but that's specific to the Midlands. Tidewater down in the Chesapeake country, which uh, we stand adjacent to right now, was founded by the younger sons of English gentry in the uh, second half of uh, the 17th century. The model was to recreate English manorial feudalism. They did so quite well, but it created a culture that had a great emphasis on respect for um, authority and hierarchy, and not a lot of emphasis on uh, equality and political participation by sort of the commoners. Very different from New England, where it was community-based and every town had to have a town meeting to uh, intentionally deflect the possibility an aristocracy would ever form. In Tidewater, they embraced the idea of aristocracy. Greater Appalachia, the, uh, that highland zone uh, founded by uh, uh, settlers from uh, uh, Ulster and the Scots Lowlands and the English Marches, uh, war-torn places, often anarchical where you couldn't count on rule of law, and you uh, had a, a warrior culture where you had to protect yourself and your own uh, by your own means often, has a uh, strong commitment to personal sovereignty and uh, individual liberty and freedom and avoiding encompasses on the same. The Deep South was founded very differently from Yankeedom. It's the sort of opposite of the two superpowers that have ended up forming coalitions and fighting many of the great internal battles on our continent. The Deep South was founded by Barbadian uh, planters, uh, English planters from the uh, island of Barbados, as specifically a West Indies slave society with a republic modeled on the uh, ancient republics of the classical world, of Greece and Rome, where democracy was the privilege of a small oligarchy and people were born into slavery and that that was the natural course of things. In fact, they believed that a republic could not possibly survive in any other form. This carried through, of course, with great tragedy in our history and on uh, after the Civil War into a formally based racial caste system that was dismantled only within our lifetimes of many of the people in this room. Uh, New France, uh, briefly, uh, the uh, mixing of Ancien Regime, Northern French peasantry's folkways with those of the Aboriginal people they met in the St. Lawrence Valley, resulting in a, a um, commitment to multiculturalism and an endless negotiation between groups. Negotiated settlements and negotiations that continue in a circle without end. The whole idea is to continue the negotiating process, and this idea, since New France is, uh, after the Quiet Revolution, is emerged uh, to control its own affairs, has uh, infected the Canadian Federation's broader thinking on a federal level and its commitment to multiculturalism. Uh, El Norte, we've uh, spoken about briefly, the obviously Spanish borderlands. I think we've touched on that. Uh, far west, the, um, one of the two uh, hybrid second generation nations that were created by the others, the last one to finally be settled, it's the one place where environment trumped ethnography because in the 19th century, the second half of the 19th century when it was founded, the conditions were so extreme, remoteness, aridity, the, uh, the um, enormous altitude that um, the folkways of these cultures as they spread could not cope with it. They actually couldn't plant their crops and have them succeed. The only way to survive by and large, with the exception of the Mormon enclave, was to attach yourself to massive uh, deployment of industrial capital that was able to overcome those uh, impediments in the 19th century. Railways, ore smelters, irrigation, dams, which could only be provided by large external co companies, uh, corporations external to the Far West or the federal government. This resulted in it being an internal colony 
where colonization has been directed by these entities, and there's been resentment ever since of both the federal government and the outsiders who have exploited the region as a resource colony ever since that affects the politics to this day. And finally, the left coast, well, almost finally the left coast, the coastal fringe there, uh, the difference with the far west, founded earlier by two groups of people, Yankees who arrived from the sea, often led in a missionary impulse to save the Pacific coast to become another New England. It was going to be another light on the hill, another new Zion, and it had to be saved promptly from the menace of all the other groups. The Pope was going to come and his Catholic minions would destroy everything. They were there founding uh, places like Berkeley and trying to fight to create a new New England. They were thwarted by the gold rush and the arrival of a large number of settlers generally overland who were concentrated in the Appalachian Midwest in their points of origin, created a fusion culture. The left coast combines the utopianism and belief in the possibility of sort of social, guide, social reform of Yankeedom with the, uh, the a, uh, emphasis on individual self-discovery and, uh, and uh, actualization that comes from the Appalachian tradition that's been staggeringly fecund and has led it to be the center of most of the high-tech companies you can possibly imagine so, in your head. So, Colin, let First Nation will skip. First Nation. <laughs> yes, you can read all about First Nation. One, one of the things I love about this map is it seems like there's some, some Jerry... Hot, far north. Okay, far north. Uh, the far, far north of the Arctic uh, zone, there are all sorts of uh, native tribes who never at any time gave up by treaty uh, rights to their land. Uh, that's resulted in it being recently recognized. This is in fact the case, and therefore they've been able to reclaim sovereignty both in Denmark and in Canada creating entities like Nunavut, a Supreme Court decision in Canada which gives them veto power over many natural resource decisions over an area bigger than the contiguous United States. And in Greenland, they just about have a nation state about to emerge. So if you've ever wondered what would it have been like if the Native Americans hadn't been wiped out, what sort of society would have they created in the 21st century, we may be about to find out. It's a fast time. <laughs> they gotta be in this time frame. <laughs> I know, really. Or drinks in the back. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about your map is uh, that there aren't just these kind of blocks. I mean, there seems to be some some cool gerrymandering going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it, I think it speaks to the nuance of it. What about um, South Florida? Yeah, yeah, excellent yeah, question. Going on down there? Yeah. Um, there are so I had to draw the line somewhere, right? Or keep going outwards. So anywhere where the cultural heart, the center of the culture, was within uh, the confines of the U.S and that, that ended up including all of Canada and the northern part of Mexico, that's where I stopped. If the cultural center is not on this map, that's where I had to leave it out. And unfortunately, South Florida is an extension of, I would imagine it's a Spanish Creole, Spanish Caribbean, probably harder than Havana, but I haven't studied it, but that would be a whole other book. Wait for a sequel. <laughs> Newfoundland is a nation of its own, and Hawaii, which is off the map on the other side, is part of the greater Polynesian zone. Therefore, none of those areas are uh, touched. Alaska is, but more on that. One thing that I uh, found provocative about your book was the assertion that there's something immutable about these distinct nations, that their core culture has been unchanging despite generations of migration. Um, and on the one hand, I didn't know quite what to make of this. I, I was skeptical, I have to say, as I was reading. Um, on the one hand, I, you sort of had me with New Netherland, this idea that there's something distinctively different about New York in opposition to Yankeedom or the Midlands, that you can trace back to Dutch ancestry, despite the fact that less than 1% of people in New York City can you know, claim Dutch origins. There, that, that still is sort of there. You can trace it back. On the other hand, I was thinking, uh, think about all the arguments uh, over immigration in a place like California. 
and Sam Huntington's book of yes. Who Are We? And the sort of real uh, alarm among some uh, you know, elements uh, and, and, and native-born Americans, although they might have migrated themselves from the Midwest to California, about what this next wave of immigration means in terms of changing the politics and the culture of, these, of, the, of this you know, nation. Um, so, uh, and yet you, you maintain, is it not true that uh, there, these core cultures do not change over time? Right, the cultures don't change over time. What I'm saying is that the initial settlement groups lead down the cultural DNA that all the rest of us have had to deal with when we arrived. When we arrived as immigrants, when our ancestors arrived, the dominant cultures they encountered weren't an American culture, it was one of these regional cultures. So in other words, a cultural acculturation and cultural transmission uh, happened the same way it would in a European culture where you arrived. You're already surrounded on the ground by a set of established cultural values, boundaries, expectations, the way people interact with each other. And you as an individual can like it or hate it, but if you hate it, you'll probably find you're sort of knocking your head against the wall and the wind is always blowing in, uh, in your face. And if you like it, you feel like you're surrounded by like-minded people and it's blowing in your direction. And large numbers of people in any one of these places don't like it. I'm not saying individuals correspond to these stereotypes. I'm saying that the, or these characteristics, I'm saying that the dominant uh, culture around them has these characteristics and the reason they do ties back to the original settlement groups who created these self-sustaining societies that the rest of us encountered. And there is a scholarship background to it I won't bore you with, but it's in the book and footnoted. Um, I didn't come up with this myself. It exists in cultural geographers as, a, as an entire idea and school of thought and how these things happen. You want to take questions? I think, to... well, we have a couple more points and then we will have some time and, and also people can, uh, can uh, corner you. You know, we're, we're in a moment now, we're here in Washington, we have to nod to the current political moment, uh, when the country's very divided. Um, there's a lot of head-scratching about how we got here, how we get out of here. And along comes your book, which uh, kind of helps explain why, why it is that we're in this fix and why, you know, people from that part of the country seem to be, you know, uh, literally from another nation, if not another planet. And you're, you're giving us a lot of kind of context to understand. It's sort of like going to therapy, right? Um, on the other hand, you know, how do you explain... So there's, there's a temptation to feel like this is also immutable, these divisions, and we all, you know, grab onto these maps that show red states and, and blue states, and, and it's just understandable that we're never going to get along. On the other hand, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, 1984, Ronald Reagan carries... 49 states, um, and yet, you know, these were 49 states from 11 different nations with these immutable differences. What is it about this moment that might make a book like yours seem to make a lot more sense than it might have in 1984 when we could all agree to rally behind Ronald Reagan over... I mean, we've had periods where we've been polarized and periods when we don't. It comes and goes. This has been a constant ebb and flow in our history. I mean, the obvious one being, of course, the Civil War. It does get much worse than this. You know, we've, we've been in binds before where there's strong polarization and disagreement. We're in another one of those uh, times when things are coming to a head. The, the differences aren't always immutable. It's almost always, though, that Yankeedom is squaring off against the Deep South since about the 1700 or so. But the coalitions that everyone else deciding whose point of view, if it's a binary decision that must be made, who shall be president, <coughs> the other groupings um, make decisions on their own. The, the coalitions shift 
over time. It's only in recent decades that we've had the current configuration that's been the uh, sort of Republican red state configuration, which is uh, deep south, tidewater, greater Appalachia, and far west. But the far west in the you know, 1930s and 1940s was a zone of populism. Now, Appalachia was not uh, joining in the Civil War along with Deep South. In fact, more people in Appalachia served in the Union armies. That's why West Virginia exists. It seceded from Virginia to stay with the Union. Eastern Tennessee wanted to do the same thing. The Free State of Winston and Northern Alabama. What I'm saying is the, the, um, the, the, group, the nations tend to act together, but they act for different reasons in different situations. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And it's rhyming again now. So that, uh, we're at another one of those junctures, which makes this book, I think, especially important in the public consciousness. But in some of those past junctures, say in the 1850s and 1860s, people were much more aware of this geography as it existed then. They knew that they came from different countries still with different ideas, which meant the ideas were on the table. Now the argument is sort of um, under the radar, and we don't understand why we don't seem to agree on what freedom means or what the uh, American ideals really are, what our true uh, American t intent is. You know, one side seems to say things that seem to the other to be the most corrosive and absolutely un-American thing from the other's perspective. And the reason is that we don't understand the vocabulary in the past. So what I'm hoping this book does is tell us what the actual questions are and what we're arguing about so you can actually move the conversation forward. And we've been in these things before, so it, you know, it's... It will probably ebb and flow again, but this is another one of those moments where understanding what we're fighting about would be handy. And in this moment, you talk about the two swing nations, this is in the book, uh, being the Midlands and El Norte. And maybe Absolutely. you could just flesh out what that means for uh, whatever electoral contest might be down the road. Right, so there's two big coalitions. I mentioned one before, the, uh, the Yankee coalition for the past few decades. In fact, for uh, the past century in the Yankees has been Yankeedom, New Netherland, and the left coast squaring off against those other four. Everybody else has been in between trying to figure out on each possible issue and vote where they want to go with that. Um, El Norte has sided with the, uh, the Democratic Party and the Blue State Coalition recently, but there's no reason to uh, be assured that that would always be the case. The Midlands, though, are the real swing region throughout our history that are currently making uh, guessing and cribbing who's going to win in the Electoral College and in various congressional districts so difficult. Because as you'll see, the Midlands cross and create a great swath of most of the key swing states in our national politics. In fact, that's why they're swing states in our national politics. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri, uh, it's, it's uh, a very, um, whoever can win over a slight majority in the often politically ambivalent Midlands often takes the day. So that's kind of where the, uh, the, the, the electoral map and the balance of current politics lie, which leads us in a knife sense. The reason we're, we're um, so divided and it seems like such a close contest now is because the issues at hand have us very evenly divided and the Midlands hasn't decided in all these issues clearly one way or another. So, I mean, if you're planning out a national election, look to the Midlands in your strategy and understanding who they are if you want to try to peel off some of those swing states in uh, your national campaigning. So if we define social cohesion, because uh, we are at the center of social cohesion, as the capacity, ability of these various nations to engage each other in a constructive manner uh, to compromise, um, you've touched a little bit about the 
differences and the dissension being cyclical in terms of how extreme it gets. But how do you see, are you optimistic about the years ahead and where trends are headed? Or, I mean, it's not the Civil War, but it's pretty ugly. But what yeah. do you, what, what's your recipe for success going forward? I mean, predicting the future is the hardest thing of all of this. You know, my, my primary goal is to uh, look at the past to understand where we are now, but of course that opens up the questions about the future and <coughs> trying to guess and detect what happens. I would like to say that I'm optimistic and that uh, with further information we might be able to carry this forward, but it is a difficult um, juncture we're at. I mean, the federal institutions that were created the grand bargain to form an alliance between all these different perspectives does require, in its basic architecture, compromise because nothing can occur if there's no compromise at all because it's a bargain between different groups and you know, proportional representation. So if we recognize that, um, I am optimistic that we will carry through and that there will be better dialogue and move forward. And I get the sense that, that the tide may be changing in the atmosphere and the sort of divisive uh, winner-take-all uh, feeling out there myself. I just get, I get the sense the weather is shifting and people are realizing that this is not constructive for any parties. So, yes, I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, but it does require that that um, be the, uh, the initial step towards us uh, being able to um, find resolution for some of these things and move on into a quiet ebb phase of, of the polar, polar differences between these nations. Okay. Uh, let's take, we're going to take a couple of questions, and apologies in advance, we're just going to take a couple because we do want people to have a chance to get refreshments and mingle and, and move around. Uh, but let's take two. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about how you broke down the region. There's 3,000 um, counties in this country. If you look at it, there's a couple of interesting areas, like Atlanta <coughs> seems to be where there's a borderline, maybe Raleigh-Durham, maybe Kansas City. How did you decide what counties are part of one region and what counties are part of another, and how would that affect, say, a metropolitan area? It, it's um, the, the most important criteria. You needed to pick a resolution level where you could do analysis over time. So the counties are the only resolution level that actually you can use because congressional districts change every 10 years, and states are obviously unhelpful. So the, that was the best unit you could use. So I had to assign divided counties to one county or the other generally. There are a couple of exceptions. Uh, Chicago, St. Louis are identified as border cities between Yankeedom and the Midlands and between the Midlands and Greater Appalachia uh, because it just so obviously cut through them. But in general, um, it was, look, it was attempting to assign each county to one grouping or the other. That required really digging in. I mean, you know, I'm from Maine, the northernmost county, Aroostook County, um, strong uh, uh, Franco-American, uh, new French element throughout the upper valley up there, but, you know, where 95% of the people's first language is French. But the counties assigned to Yankeedom because they're grossly outnumbered in the county by, you know, people who aren't. 90% of the county isn't. So those kind of equations took place in uh, getting to a county resolution. The big criteria in understanding the counties, if available, was the um, obvious initial settlement groups being from one of the other nations. So some of the maps in the book that you'll see are the actual um, flow and arrows of the flow and settlement patterns of which parts of the seaboard and the southern rim colonized which areas of the west and working northward. And they tended to be mutually exclusive. In some cases, you'll see there are sort of bands. Part of that is because it was an agrarian society and they were following crop bands, but also the advice and they sent back. There are all sorts of 
handbooks for immigrants and letters being sent back, you know, advice for people considering going west. A lot of them had to do with where you would go, where you would be amongst your people, as opposed to those awful people you can't stand from other regions of the country. It was pretty explicit. So there was a great deal of intentional avoidance of the other because they found uh, each other's ways um, unsettling. So uh, there was intentional um, um, sorting in that fashion. So wherever available, I did that. And of course, there are areas of the country where it gets a little ambiguous, particularly the more you move west, the softer the echo from the original cultures. And it's bringing in voting patterns, uh, uh, slave-holding patterns by county in some of the states like Arkansas and stuff, which match up almost identically with the percentage vote for whether or not you're going to secede when your state held a convention in, uh, in the uh, Confederacy, and again with uh, various uh, key political votes in presidential elections where there was a stark decision uh, between regional candidates. And usually if you overlaid those, they would almost always overlay perfectly, which gave you great confidence. Now, yeah, you could quibble about some individual counties because it was hard to decide exactly where they'd land, and I do some research on specific counties, but in general, this holds really well. And I mean, cultural boundaries are not quite as firm as political ones. You could make arguments for individual places or even enclaves. Hey, Milwaukee is a Midland enclave inside Yankee. I mean, there are conversations you could have from here, but that's how the big picture is formed, and. Uh, at the macro level, I have good confidence in the way it's put together. It's all footnoted and stuff. You can go back to original sources to figure out how I did it as well. The notes going back on advice from Arizona read, it's really hot here, but it's dry heat, so come on out, right? <laughs> Just one more question. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Um, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Colin, if you laid, overlaid the religious map on these yeah. counties. Yes, I mean, you would see remarkable things. Would uh, you see... Uh, uh, correspondence to certain cultural tendencies, or are there anomalies that are really interesting? Yes, you would see that. There would be some interesting anomalies, but you would see, um, say, uh, 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 those uh, religious studies people put together maps of the major religious areas of the United States. You'll see the same bands, more or less, that I'm describing here, matching these cultural zones. Things like uh, percentage of the population who is Southern Baptist, go look up on the Census Bureau's county maps. You will see a stark difference between a giant red in Appalachia and the Deep South and almost nothing in vast swaths of the uh, Northern Alliance countries. Those do in fact have, there are, there are um, uh, corresponding uh, echoes between cultural values and the way the religious traditions played out in these different places. Baptists are a good example. The Northern Baptist tradition, mid-19th century, and the Southern Baptist tradition diverged a great deal. Within the same denomination, usually the different regions ended up diverging and uh, speciating almost uh, as they move forward over the past century or so. So yes, you see big differences. Uh, religions in Yankeedom, um, a lot of them having great emphasis on the social gospel and the idea that you, you must make the current world holy. And many of those things did not end up taking hold in the southern tier, where it ended up being about individual salvation and not so much about the conditions in the regular world being less important. Regular world's corrupted. Those have policy implications if you believe those things. And of course, they, they tie together, and there's great correspondence between the denominations that say one of those things and the other that fall on these maps. So yes, absolutely. And again, footnotes and stuff that lead you to wonderful books and, you know, by experts who really know what they're talking about who will describe these in great and fascinating detail. Thank you so much. As you can see, there is a lot to be learned from this book. There are sales in the back. Colin will be here for another hour or so, so you can ask him more questions. Uh, 
And please stick around, have some, have a drink, and thank you so much for coming. And Colin, this is a great book. Thank you very much. Thank you.